Amen. Thank you, choir. Jesus shines brighter. Jesus shines purer. And none can be nearer than our Lord Jesus Christ, who lives in our very souls. Welcome to worship at Woodmont Baptist Church. We do have a lot of visitors today, which is uh, exciting. All summer long, we've had so many. I think the choir's coming down now because uh, I could see like Jessica Mozo's face through like this hole right here. So they, they're going to come down so they don't have to look at the back of the trees uh, here. But what an incredible job, our VBS team. Uh, this is all original. This is uh, all original from Caroline Rahman. She's our official artist in residence here. And uh, Trevor Prather and uh, Carrie Redman, who worked extensively on the Jeep over there, it, it, it turns on. You can flip it on, and it rumbles and makes a sound like a Jeep. And headlights work, and there's jungle noises on it. It's just absolutely amazing. So... Thank you to everyone in advance for the uh, work that you have done and the work that you will do next week. I pray that you will join me this week in praying for lives that will be changed forever by the truth of Jesus Christ through Vacation Bible School, Bible being the imperative word there, that the Bible be proclaimed, that God's word will be open, and that hearts of children will be open to God's word as they hear the Bible taught. So Thank you in advance to everyone who's going to be uh, involved with that next week. Rob Caldwell, so good to have Rob back uh, from Dominica after three weeks there. And Rob, uh, you know, the flights getting in and out of Dominica are kind of tricky, apparently, as our team found out this past uh, week as they tried to get down there. But Rachel was very um, apprehensive about Rob getting back on time because he's in charge of recreation for VBS tomorrow. So he made it back, no worries, yesterday. So praise God for that. When I woke up today, I, I just was so excited. I always love coming to worship, but I was so excited about preaching this text because it's such a rich text. I was so excited about sharing God's word with you today. It's, it's a long text. It's the second longest of any of the texts that we're going to be reading uh, throughout this series as we walk through the gospel of John. But it's a story. It's one unified story, and I think you will find it powerful. So if you're able to stand for several minutes while I read this long text, then please join me in standing in honor of God's word as I read John chapter 9, verses 1 through 41. Hear now the word of the Lord. As he passed by, he saw a man blind from birth. And his disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? Jesus answered, it was not that this man sinned or his parents, but that the works of God might be displayed in him. We must work the works of him who sent me while it is day. Night is coming when no one can work. As long as I am in the world, I am the light of the world. Having said these things, he spat on the ground and made mud with the saliva. Then he anointed the man's eyes with the mud and said to him, go, wash in the pool of Siloam, which means sent. So he went and washed and came back seen. The neighbors and those who had seen him before as a beggar were saying, is this not the man who used to sit and beg? Some said, it is he. Others said, no, but he is like him. He kept saying, I am the man. So they said to him, then how were your eyes opened? He answered, the man called Jesus made mud and anointed my eyes and said to me, go to Siloam and wash. So I went and washed and received my sight. They said to him, where is he? 
He said, I do not know. They brought to the Pharisees the man who had formerly been blind. Now it was a Sabbath day when Jesus made the mud and opened his eyes. So the Pharisees again asked him how he received his sight. And he said to them, he put mud on my eyes, I washed, and I see. Some of the Pharisees said, this man is not from God, for he does not keep the Sabbath. But others said, how can a man who is a sinner do such signs? And there was a division among them. So they said again to the blind man, what do you say about him since he has opened your eyes? He said, he is a prophet. The Jews did not believe that he had been blind and had received his sight until they called the parents of the man who had received his sight and asked them, is this your son who you say was born blind? How then does he now see? His parents answered, we know that this is our son and that he was born blind. But how he now sees, we do not know, nor do we know who opened his eyes. Ask him, he is of age, he will speak for himself. His parents said these things because they feared the Jews. For the Jews had already agreed that if anyone should confess Jesus to be the Christ, he was to be put out of the synagogue. Therefore his parents said, he is of age, ask him. So for the second time they called the man who had been blind and said to him, give glory to God. We know that this man is a sinner. He answered, whether he's a sinner, I do not know. One thing I do know, that though I was blind, now I see. They said to him, what did he do to you? How did he open your eyes? He answered them, I have told you already and you would not listen. Why do you want to hear it again? Do you also want to become his disciples? And they reviled him, saying, you are his disciple, but we are disciples of Moses. We know that God has spoken to Moses. But as for this man, we do not know where he comes from. The man answered, why, this is an amazing thing. You do not know where he comes from, yet he opened my eyes. We know that God does not listen to sinners. But if anyone is a worshiper of God and does his will, God listens to him. Never since the world began, has it been heard that anyone opened the eyes of a man born blind? If this man were not from God, he could do nothing. They answered him, you were born in utter sin, and would you teach us? And they cast him out. Jesus heard that they had cast him out, and having found him, he said, do you believe in the Son of Man? He answered, and who is he, sir, that I may believe in him? Jesus said to him, you have seen him, and it is he who is speaking to you. He said, Lord, I believe, and he worshiped him. Jesus said, for judgment I came into this world that those who do not see may see, and those who see may become blind. Some of the Pharisees near him heard these things and said to him, are we also blind? Jesus said to them, if you were blind, you would have no guilt but now that you say we see, your guilt remains. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. Congratulations, you stood for 41 verses. It's not like a Catholic church. Catholic church, you stand up for hours, so you guys are champions. Thank you. This is such a rich passage, isn't it? Such a powerful passage. I love hearing you say amen as we read it because the word of God is so powerful and profoundly impacted as we read it. There's so much going on in here. I just want to unpack some of it, but we're really just scratching the surface of it. 
You know, this passage reminds us of the passage in John chapter 5, where Jesus healed the lame man. He'd been an invalid for 38 years by the pool of Bethesda. And of course, Jesus always seems to heal on the Sabbath day, doesn't he? I think he knows what he's doing. <laughs> and remember that these miracles are, are so similar. They're both by a pool. They both had horrible circumstances, being born blind or being an invalid for a long time. They were both seen as social outcasts on the margins of society. Jesus heals them in, in, in miraculous ways by commanding him to stand up or by putting the mud on his eyes. But the responses of these two men could not be more different. The, the man in John chapter 5, do you remember, he goes and tattletales on Jesus to the Jewish authorities. And then he disappears from the scene because he's scared. Whereas the man in this chapter, chapter 9, his life will never be the same as he becomes a follower and a worshiper of Jesus Christ. Remember, too, that these miracles that Jesus performs aren't just, you know, they're not just, you know, nice acts that he's doing of service. He's not just alleviating someone's physical condition and illness, but they're signs, right? These benevolent acts are more than just benevolent acts of service. They're signs that point to something beyond the sign themselves. You know, in the first 12 chapters of John, we have these seven signs, and they all point to the fact that Jesus is the Messiah, the anointed Son of God. But remember the context of this story, too. Yes, it's the sixth sign in the Gospel of John, and yes, it points to the fact that Jesus is the Messiah, but it's, it's also a sign of the true light of the world that is entered into the darkness of our world in order to eradicate the darkness through the acts of redemption. John's already been talking a lot about light and darkness. Remember the, the prologue in John chapter 1, that the true light of the world was coming into the world at the advent of Christ. And ever since that theme of light and darkness has, has been running throughout this gospel, and remember, too, that we're in, ever since John chapter 7, we're in Jerusalem, right? For what? The Feast of Tabernacles. It was during the Feast of Tabernacles that this has all taken place. Remember that every night at the Feast of Tabernacles, they would light up the whole temple mount like a big Christmas tree, and it would give light to the whole city of Jerusalem and could be seen for miles around. They would, they would light these four huge lanterns filled with oil and put them in the four corners of the courtyard of the temple. And it was such a bright spectacle. Men would come and they would light torches and they would dance around and sing and worship God with all their heart all night long. It would go on throughout the night as they celebrated the light of the Lord. In that context, in John chapter 8, verse 12, Jesus stands up and says, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life within them. Hallelujah. Here in chapter 9, he proves it. At the first point we see in this text is before the miracle even happens. He's teaching us something before he even heals this blind man. And he shows us that our God is a good, good father and not some petty vengeful schoolmaster. 
I remember teaching this passage to teenagers many years ago, and, and as I was teaching, it was like seeing light bulbs go off, and it wasn't anything that I said that had originated with myself or any other human, but it was the simple truth of the first three verses in this text. These three verses serve to break chains and to open eyes, because I think most of those teenagers I was talking to had an incorrect perception of who God is, and what I'm learning is most adults do too. I mean, really, who do you imagine God to be? When you think about God, what comes to your mind? How do you conceive of the high and holy triune God of the universe? Therapists would tell us that it's probably because of some negative experience in our past, most likely during early childhood. And if we're honest, I think it's true that most of us tend to view God as an impossible to please parent or as a vengeful schoolmaster who's just waiting for us to mess up so he can zap us. You know, our parents were mostly good people who did the best that they could, but they all had one thing in common. They were human, which means they messed up at some level. They weren't perfect. So it's impossible for us to conceive of God as a perfect father because we don't know what that looks like. We know in our heads that God is not petty, that he's not vengeful. We have good theology. We've been raised in church, a lot of us. But in our hearts, we believe this pettiness of God's wrath that he's like Zeus just waiting to zap us and throw lightning bolts at us even though we know in our heads it's not true. You know, it's impossible for us to conceive of a holy God who's also perfectly loving at the same time, who is love at his very essence, at his core, who always executes both perfect grace and mercy and love and perfect justice and holiness and righteousness at the same time. All for our good and ultimately for his glory, which is also our good. (laughs) Jesus' disciples apparently thought this way too. They had an incorrect conception of who God is. They see this man who's a beggar by the gate in Jerusalem, who's been born blind, has no way of earning a living for himself other than depending on the kindness of strangers. And this text actually says that Jesus saw him. Verse 1, look at verse 1. It says that Jesus saw him. Maybe the disciples didn't even notice this guy until Jesus points him out to them. We don't always see people, like Lee Ellen was saying. We don't always see people who are in need of a hug, of a welcome, of a word of encouragement or greeting. And we certainly fail to see people as Jesus sees. So Jesus sees this man, and they ignorantly ask Jesus, Rabbi, who sinned? Was it this man or his parents? that caused him to be born blind. And we shouldn't be too hard on the disciples, right? They're they're only trying to not incriminate God. They're attempting to avoid blaming God for giving this man the condition of blindness. Surely he must have done something wrong to deserve to be in this pitiful condition that he finds himself. God would never do that to him. Or, Or maybe they believe that God visited the sins of the father on this person, that the sins of his parents were responsible for his condition. 
That would mean that God is still just and he remains uncruel and a good God if he deserved it. That fits their notion of God as the impossible to please parent, as the vengeful school teacher who just doles out punishment. I mean, he's God, he's righteous, he's powerful, he's sovereign, he's holy. He can zap anyone he wants to, right? Anyone who gets out of line, he can corral them right back in. He probably enjoys it. I would, if I was God, nope, nope, nope. That's how we would act. But that's not who God is. God is love. Everything he does, therefore, is done out of love. He is compelled by love. He doesn't zap anyone. Yes, he's allowed this man to be born blind, but he did it for a good, loving reason. What would one day happen to this blind man would become a permanent revelation of truth, of God's divine truth. On this day, this man would receive the greatest gift of all. Not only would he receive the gift of sight, but more importantly, he would meet the living Christ and put his faith in him. And at the end of the story, we see that he becomes a worshiper of the Lord Jesus Christ. So one of the key questions for us then right off the bat from the first three verses is, do we really believe that God doesn't glibly dole out punishment for our bad behavior, but instead uses the pain and suffering that we experience in our lives for our own good and for his glory? I believe that God is in the business of working good from bad 24-7. I've seen it in my own life. I've seen it in the lives of others in our congregation. We call that work redemption. Bringing good from bad is redemption. And that's what God does always, and nowhere is it better exemplified than on the cross of Jesus Christ. You know, suffering is not always a result of someone's sin Jesus lived a sinless life, and yet he suffered a torturous death on the cross. And look at how God used that suffering to redeem the sins of the world. Don't get me wrong, sin has devastating consequences. Sin inevitably leads to death and destruction always. I believe that. I've seen that, too, in my own life. Sin seems to have its own consequences. It's not a vengeful God who's doling out mean punishment. Sin inevitably brings its own death and destruction. But God can use and transform suffering in our lives in ways that we could never have imagined. And a lot of us here would say, yeah, but you know, I'd rather not go through the suffering at all to begin with. I'd rather just be spared the suffering on the front end. Why would a good God allow us to go through suffering to begin with? You know, I, I'm a parent, and, and I try to help my kids avoid suffering as much as possible. But I also know that suffering makes them who God wants them to be. Andrew Peterson, one of my favorite singer-songwriters, I quote him all the time, he has a song that says, maybe it's a better thing, a better thing, to be more than merely innocent, but to be broken and then redeemed by love. Maybe it's a better thing to just be innocent from the beginning, but to be broken 
and then redeemed by love. Maybe God allows suffering to bring about a better thing. God's goodness and God's greatness are on display in his work of redemption. When God takes this fallen, broken world and fixes it, the world rejoices at God's glory and amazing grace. When we experience God's miraculous deliverance from suffering, when the blind become sighted, we become living proof of God's mercy and his power. But redemption is not a, a passive act on our part. What does Jesus tell this guy? Sit back and relax, I'm gonna take care of it. No, he tells him, go, get off your mat and go wash in the pool of Siloam. We must be willing to get up from our worn out beggar's mat, from our sin and sorrow, and begin this whole new kind of life cleansed by the living water of Jesus Christ. We're gonna see that symbolized next week as the waters of baptism are stirred here as Tate Richardson follows Jesus' example in believer's baptism. And when we encounter Jesus, we get off our mat, we enter into this whole new kind of life, we're transformed. It says here in the text that the neighbors of this blind man didn't recognize him. They said, is that the same guy? Can that be really him? It, it transforms us. Have you ever met a new believer who is so different because God's grace has so affected them that they physically look different? We had a kid in my youth group many years ago who brought a friend from school to visit our youth group and she was not raised in a Christian home and she was about 14 years old and this was back when goth was still a thing. Remember goth? Uh, you millennials will. So she, she dressed all in black and she, she wore black makeup and, and black eyeliner and black lipstick and, and she was real shy and she just kind of moped around and would look at the floor and not really talk to anybody and was a, a pretty sad and scared little girl. But after she heard the gospel, after she heard God's word, the hound of heaven came after her in a way that she couldn't resist. And a, a year and a half later, I got to lead her to the Lord and pray to receive Jesus Christ as her Lord and Savior on a mission trip in New Orleans. And, and the change that came about in this girl's life was so drastic, so dramatic, that if you could see her as a junior or senior in high school, you would never have believed that she was this 14-year-old, shy, sad, scared little girl. She, she began to, to dress differently. She, she wore bright colors. The, her smile became radiant with the grace of Jesus Christ that shone out from her. She became a leader in our youth ministry and discipled many, many other younger, younger girls that she had the opportunity to encourage to grow in the grace and the knowledge of their Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. The transformation was completely radical. This is what it means to become a new creation. Behold, the old has gone, the new has come. This is why it's so important that we have new believers, new converts, new transformed disciples in our church. New believers are, are usually the most effective evangelists because they've gone through this radical transformation and they become living proof of the gospel. They're eager to grow in discipleship as they learn to follow Jesus Christ daily. Look at the progression of faith that we see in this man's life. We see that he's on a discipleship path. He's on a journey of growing in grace. 
In verse 17, what does he call Jesus? They say, who is this guy? That healed? Who, who do you say he is? And he said, he's a prophet. That's true. He definitely spoke the words of God. He was a prophet, but he was so much more. He's our great high priest. He's the king of heaven, the king of glory. And then you see later the man stands up to the Pharisees, these Jewish authorities, these Jewish rulers in Jerusalem, and boldly defends Jesus Christ. I love that verse 25. During his second interrogation, you know, they interrogate him once, and they send him away, and they interrogate his parents, and they bring him back and ask him the same questions over again and interrogate him a second time. And he says, look, guys, let me tell you the truth. Let me lay out the facts. One thing I know, I was blind, and now I see. How do you argue with that? The truth of the transforming work of Jesus Christ. He's bold in how he confronts them, how he speaks to these guys. And he invites them even later to become disciples of Jesus Christ as well. Look at verse 27. Why do you want to hear this again? Do you also want to become his disciples? At first I thought he was being cynical and sarcastic like I would be, but that's not, I don't think what's happening. You know, the commentaries I read said maybe that he's sensing that these guys are secretly letting their walls starting to crumble in their resistance to the grace of God. Maybe he's giving them an evangelistic opportunity to know Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior. He invites them. He says, do you guys want to become his disciples too? And again, new believers, man, they're, they're such good inviters. They invite people into the story of God's redemption. They can't wait to bring others into that joy that they've received. But the Pharisees end up just defaulting back to what they know, the old way of knowing that Moses was a great prophet, so they're just going to stick with that. <laughs> they know that Moses was from God. And here in, in verse 30, the formerly blind man starts to correct these Jewish authorities about their old, tired system of religious thinking. He shows them that miracles are done not by sinners, but as a result of prayer, that God listens to those who worship him and do his will, those who love him and obey him. And he answers those prayers in miraculous ways, and the blind become sighted. And the final step in this man's discipleship journey happens after he's, he's excommunicated from the synagogue. Verse 34, the Pharisees are so outraged by the fact that they have no explanation for the facts that this guy is laying out. So they resort to personal insults. Again, they, they say that this guy must have been born blind because of sin in his parents' life or in his life. He was born in utter sin, they say, and they banish him from the Jewish fellowship. You know, in Matthew chapter 5, when Jesus opens the Sermon on the Mount, he opens it with what's known as the Beatitudes, right? And the, the last part of the Beatitudes, starting in Matthew 5, verse 10, say this, Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, 
For your reward is great in heaven, for so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. You're just following in a good line of godly people. Jesus does not let our suffering go to waste. And look at verse 35. He heard that they cast this guy out, and then he went and found him. Jesus actively seeks out those who have suffered, those who have been outcasts, those who have been wronged for his sake, and he goes to find them. And he brings this guy the opportunity to know him as the Messiah. In verse 38, we see the conclusion of this man's story. He believed Jesus and he worshiped him. The word for worshiped in Greek, proskuneo, it means, it's where we get our word prostrate from. It means to lie on your face in submission and acknowledgement that someone else is Lord. He falls on his face before Jesus and says, you are Lord God, you are master and savior, and he worships Jesus Christ. D.A. Carson, the, the great New Testament teacher, calls this last section uh, here in chapter nine, the, the sight of the blind and the blindness of the sighted. This chapter is not just about the healing of a blind man, is it? It's about spiritual blindness that's so much worse than physical blindness. Jesus says in verse 39 that he's come to bring sight to the blind so that those who claim to be able to see will also understand that they are in fact blind. He tells the Pharisees in verse 41 that because they claim to be able to see, they are actually blind. Who is it in our society today that most closely resembles the Pharisees? Who is it that says, I'm right, I'm okay, I'm all good? It's probably religious people. It's probably preachers. We're probably the ones that Jesus would be hardest on if he came back today. We need to be so careful, church, that as Christians, we don't fall into the same trap the Pharisees were in. In our Wednesday night summer study that we've been going through, it's, we're doing a series called What's Wrong with the World by a a guy named Fran Shaka, who I love dearly. And in it, Fran talks about how when sin first entered creation way back in Genesis chapter three, that it ruined the shalom, the, the peace and the prosperity of what once was a very good creation. It's been wrecked by sin. And, and that has huge implications for everything. Everything is broken now because of sin. It, it deeply affects the way that we relate to other things. It, it breaks the way we relate to ourselves. Sin breaks the way we relate to others. Sin ruins the way that we relate to creation, to the environment, to the world around us. And most importantly, it wrecks how we relate to God. So those four corruptions show us how profound the influence of sin is. And we have to understand that in order to grasp how great the grace of God is. The gospel is so much more powerful when we understand the depths of sin and the power of sin, that we are not in fact sighted, but we are hopelessly blind apart 
from Jesus Christ. We are not okay. Contrary to the popular book from the 60s, I'm okay, you're okay. We are deeply flawed. It's in our bones, it's in our DNA. I know there was a, a popular song, I mentioned it before, and a sign down the road that uh, said, most people are good. It was a country hit like two months ago or three months ago or something. And I was talking to another country music artist in Nashville who's very successful as a country artist, and he said, that song was pitched to me first. And he said, I, I couldn't sing it with a straight face. He said, most people are good? That's not true at all. We're broken. We, we're deeply flawed. We have serious problem of sin, the same terminal illness of sin that we all bear. But the good news, the gospel, is that at the same time that we are so broken, we are also more loved, more accepted, and more welcomed into the arms of Jesus Christ than we ever dared to hope to believe. So to recap quickly, we first see in this passage that God is not a vengeful father. If you had one of those, a petty parent, I'm sorry. He's not just a, a, a vengeful teacher either. Our suffering might just be a gracious act of love that he intends to use to reveal his glory to the world. Second, we see the, the transformation that takes place when we play our part and get off the couch, get off the, the beggar's mat and follow Christ with all that we have, all that we are. We become then a new creation, changed from the inside out by the overwhelming grace of God. Do you have that same joy and that passion and the energy of a recent convert? Has it waned over the years? Has cynicism set in as you convince yourself, I'm okay? And third and finally, do we understand that we're all in that same sinking boat of sin apart from Jesus Christ. No matter how accomplished we are, no matter how attractive you may be, no matter how together your family may be, no matter how successful and how many degrees and achievements that you've reached, we are not okay. We are blind spiritually and we are desperately in need of a savior. Don't buy into the false gospel of I'm okay you're okay. Without Jesus, no one is okay. We are blind until the Messiah comes along and gives us the true light of the world. Let's pray. God, thank you for your word. Thank you for showing us the true light that reveals not only your greatness and your glory and your majesty, but also our need. It shows us just how desperate we actually are, in fact. That on our own, left to our own devices, our own ingenuity, our own accomplishment or cleverness, that we are in a sinking boat. But God, you have shown us amazing grace that spared no expense, even the cost of your own son, that can now cause us to say, I once was blind, but now I see that that same truth that was true for the blind man is true for us as well. That you have made us a new creation from the inside out. God, I'm so sorry for my own life, how I get cynical, how I get jaded, and how I forget the amazing grace that caused me to go from blind to seeing. 
I pray that you would help me and every other believer in this place that may have been a believer for a long time, even longer than me, that they would have that same joy, that same newness of passion and energy for the gospel that new believers have. May we run excitedly to a world that needs light, a world that's full of darkness, and say, I once was blind, but now I see, and invite others into that same saving joy and grace. God, we are grateful that you are a good, good father, and that you don't treat us according to our sins, but you remove our sins as far as east is from the west because of your grace and your love for us that knows no bounds. I pray that you would help us to live out that same love as we leave this place today. We pray all these things in your high and your holy name, the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. This year, as we've been focusing on discipleship, we're going to sing this song now, Footsteps of Jesus, that we will follow in the way that Jesus goes to get off our mat, to get off of our beggar's stoop, and to begin following Jesus with all that we are, because that's the best way to live. It's only the introduction to eternity. After 80, 90 years here, then we begin our lives with the Lord Jesus forever. Let's remember that perspective as we stand and sing Footsteps of Jesus. If you need to come forward and pray, you can go ahead and stand. If you want to come forward and pray with somebody, I'm going to ask Trey, I'm going to ask Brad, I'm going to ask Jan. If you'll come up here, if you want to pray with one of our prayer team, they'll be here to pray with you. If you need healing, if you need uh, emotional, uh, physical, whatever is going on in your life and you just want to pray with somebody, they'll be here to talk with you and pray with you about that. If you want to come and be a part of what God's doing as a member of Woodmont Baptist Church, we invite you to join this family of faith. We're not a perfect family. No family is on earth, but we are faithfully following the Lord Jesus as we become the church that he wants us to be. It's been incredible. I wish you could hear stories from Dominica about transformed lives from the prison ministry that Don Abel and Jim and so many others have been getting involved with to see all that's going on through our church. If you want to be a part of that, we invite you to come and talk about joining this church. Maybe you've never fallen on your face before Jesus Christ and worshiped him as Lord and Savior, and you're feeling today that it's time for you to become a Christian for the first time deep in your soul. If that's what you want to do today, there's no better time than right now. Let's sing this song together, Footsteps of Jesus. <laughs>